0: Hello, everyone. We'll start the presentation in about one minute. We're just waiting for everyone to get settled in. Hello, everyone. We'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. Uh, we're still waiting for everyone to get settled. Hello everyone and welcome to today's safety and health webcast. Workplace incidents investigations are key to prevention. Sponsored by JJ Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, associate editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I'm moderating today's session. Thank you all for joining us. We hope you're safe and well wherever you are today. We'll start the presentation in a couple of minutes, but first there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise project or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. After today's today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Type your question, click the send button. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible. We might not get to every question, the good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, we'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event, view this Webcast, and all of our past webcasts. Please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Just to let you know, our sponsor, JJ Keller, has also generously provided an additional, resources, uh, additional resource on the 14 elements of process safety management and its PSM services link to that resource will appear in a post-event email. And with that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today are Ed Zaleski and Derek Plowden. Ed is a senior editor at J.D. Keller. He researches and creates content on a variety of safety-related topics and contributes to several products, specializes in issues such as walking working surfaces, powered industrial trucks, and injury and illness record keeping. Derek is a technical editor for J.D. Keller's content and consulting services. He writes for the monthly newsletter, Hazmat Safety Training Advisor, responds to customer questions, and contributes content for several publications. Derek specializes in multiple topics, including construction regulations, ergonomics, walking working surfaces, personal protective equipment, and injury and illness record keeping. Once again, we thank you all for joining us. Gentlemen, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank
1: you, Alan. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I want to add that today's webcast is brought to you by the JJ Keller Safety Management Suite. This is a solution that works as hard as you do. The Safety Management Suite streamlines compliance at every level of your business and makes it easy to develop, implement, and maintain an industry-specific safety program. Because your safety is our priority, your success is our priority, Today's attendees will be offered complimentary access to this compliance resource and the tools in Safety Management Suite. So on behalf of JJ Keller and our Safety Management Suite, thank you again for joining us. Now, today we're obviously here to talk about accident investigations and particularly getting at the root causes. So I wanna start by highlighting the difference between uh, immediate causes or people call them surface causes and root causes. So you may hear me say immediate cause or surface cause, That's the same thing there are on the surface. Root causes tend to run a little bit deeper. An immediate cause is usually a workplace condition or an employee action that leads to an accident. Think of things like water on the floor causes a slip or an employee is using a damaged tool. The tool is part of the condition, tools, or environment. The problem is, of course, cleaning up the water or replacing the tool won't necessarily prevent the same situation from happening again. The root causes are the factors that allowed that situation to occur or to arise. Now, these might be things like inadequate procedures, uh, lack of inspections, failure of supervisors to enforce safety rules. There's a lot of possible causes. Obviously, correcting a root cause is a lot more challenging than just fixing the surface or immediate causes. But those root causes do have to be addressed or you're going to see the same kind of incidents happening again in the future. Now, some state OSHA agencies may require employers to investigate accidents. And federal OSHA, of course, expects you to identify and eliminate hazards, which generally requires investigating. Uh, The only regulation that really requires incident investigations is is the process safety management. But you you wanna figure out what went wrong. Beyond that, I've talked to a lot of safety professionals Quite a few of them have personal stories involving serious injuries, maybe to a family member, and that's what encouraged them to enter the safety profession. So we know that you care about safety. You want to keep your employees safe. Well, that requires preventing accidents, and so any serious injury, of course, makes people wonder, well, what went wrong? What happened? And the investigation should absolutely answer that question, but finding the root cause really helps you answer that more important question, how do we prevent this from happening again? Now I'm gonna give an example Uh, of an employee was injured by slipping on ice in the winter. Obviously the immediate cause is the ice on the sidewalk and that's easy to fix, a little bit of sand or salt maybe and your problem is solved, but the root causes These are usually a system failure. For even such a simple example, uh, finding the root cause might involve asking questions like, why wasn't the problem identified sooner? Did other employees notice the problem? Did they report it? Uh, Do you need to review your procedures for inspecting sidewalks in the winter? Do we need more frequent inspections? Was the person responsible for doing the inspections, maybe on vacation and didn't have a designated backup? There's a lot of possible causes here that are systemic, and if those root causes can be identified and better yet addressed, you can better prevent future accidents. Now, we want to point out that a lot of accidents result from a confluence of events. Uh, in some cases, you know, there's only one cause, but in many, many cases, there's one primary cause, but usually more than one contributing factor. Now, the surface or immediate causes, they generally explain how an accident happened. And again, you need to keep digging for those root causes to understand the why as well as the how. So I want to give an example of a car accident. Let's suppose a driver is using a cell phone, drifts out of his lane, causes a minor accident. Well, our analysis seems pretty simple. We'd probably find that using a cell phone distracted the driver, And we can probably guess that if he hadn't been using the phone, had been focused on the road, the accident probably would have been avoided. And that tells us how the accident happened. But the next level is determining why was the driver using a cell phone when he was behind the wheel? I mean, even if state law doesn't prohibit using a cell phone while driving, we know some states do, uh, but I think we all know that's, that's dangerous. It's a distraction. So potential route causes or questions to get at the root cause might be maybe the driver didn't know that using a cell phone while driving is dangerous. Hard to believe he didn't know that, but we consider if that's a possibility and training could help. Or maybe he thought he could use the phone safely while driving. Maybe he'd done it many times before and never caused an accident because, you know, pure luck. The distraction didn't cause an accident. Now, to prevent future incidents We could adopt a rule that using a cell phone while driving is prohibited, Uh, but there may be larger issues involving distracted driving or even employee attitudes that we might be missing. Uh, This driver might have been ignoring a rule anyway. And if we say no cell phones, what if people are eating while driving? Now, if the driver really didn't know the dangers of using a cell phone while behind the wheel, as I said, then training might be a solution but if an investigation makes us think that he just ignored the danger, then we do have some other root cause to consider. I'm going to pass to Derek for a bit.
2: Thank you, Ed. All great information. Obviously, getting to the root cause of any situation or incident is exactly what we want to do, and to do that, you have to investigate. Um, But before you can even investigate, you have to have a little bit of preparation beforehand to make sure that you're getting everything you can right um to make sure that you can identify what went wrong within a specific incident and really get to the root cause of it so of course if you're going to investigate any accident near miss anything of the sort you need to be prepared so you can get on the scene quickly you might even create a written plan or policy some of you might have something like this already ready just in case there's an incident that happens and you're ready for an investigation at a minimum of course you'll want a list of what to do when you arrive For example, you may need to take photos, you you might have to collect air samples, you might have to make notes about what records to check, you might have to measure distances, identify any witnesses that were around, and be ready to document those interviews. Of course, this isn't something that has to be completely up to you. You might want to assign someone uh, to any specific, you know, one of these tasks. But um, of course, somebody's going to have to be ready. Everyone whoever is involved should understand their role and they should also be ready to go as soon as they get that call. And they should be able to grab the investigation kit, documents, paperwork, uh, notes, whatever they need to use to collect their samples, uh, camera, whatever it is, they should be able to grab that and be ready to go right away once they get the call. Of course, if you need help with a written plan, as I would mentioned, the Safety Management Suite has an accident reporting and investigation plan template. Since Safety Management Suite is sponsoring today's event, we'd like to offer you access to our safety plan templates at no cost. So to help simplify your safety efforts, uh, the JJ Keller Safety Management Suite offers 120 plus, uh, which is a lot, pre-written safety plan templates. Just choose your topic, fill out the form, and then within minutes, you'll have a pretty good idea of what your plan is gonna look like. You'll have a written plan set up, uh, one that's specifically built for your business. So please use the poll on your screen to select your interests. And along with your access to our free safety plans in the site, we'll also email you a digital copy of our OSHA 101 white paper. And just as a reminder, folks, if you can, please take time to submit your questions, even your comments. If you have any best practice information that you'd like to share, any wins that you might have, please feel free to send in your questions, comments, whatever it may be uh, to Ed and I. And we'll get to those at the end of the webcast today and we'll hopefully be able to address some of those um toward towards the end here now of course training is going to be key um everyone on the investigation team should be trained there are lengthy courses that are available on training we're not going to go over all the details today but obviously whoever you have investigate will need to understand their specific responsibilities they'll need to really know how, when, and, uh, you know, exactly why they're starting that investigation. There's gotta be, uh, you know, something that, that, that triggers that investigation. Obviously they need to know, um, how to start it. That may sound simple, but if you get a near miss report, uh, if the investigator has a meeting, well, when should the investigation start? Uh, so you might want to address certain things like that, obviously, so that there's a little bit of clarity, um, you know, in terms of finding out that there's an incident, but you know, there's people who are in a meeting or they're busy, you know, who's, who's going to start that investigation process and how are we going to get it done? So that way we can get the information we need to get to the root cause to prevent these sorts of things from happening. Obviously time is of the essence. So again, this is going to be really important to cover within your training if an employee was injured and sent to the hospital, the investigation should probably start immediately. But what if a near miss could have caused a hospitalization? There might be a serious hazard to workers that should be addressed right away. The point is you shouldn't delay the investigation of a serious hazard just because the injury was not that serious. You have to think to yourself, it's something that could have been very serious or could have caused a serious injury or or you know, God forbid a death or something like that. It, all incidents that you know happen any sort of investigation you want to take as seriously as possible and and again avoid that that thought process of well it wasn't that serious so we don't have to address it right away you know it needs to be addressed immediately team members should also need to know what to look for and how to gather evidence and you'll want to document the findings and offer corrective actions again to prevent future incidents In addition, you'll want to consider training workers about the investigation process. Let them know that if an accident or a near miss happens, the company will you know, issue an investigation. And beyond that, let them know that the purpose of the investigation, again, is not to assign blame here. That's not what we're looking to do. The purpose is really to prevent future accidents so that they don't get hurt. You might reassure them that if they witness an accident, uh, they'll be interviewed, but that doesn't mean that they're in trouble course, you'll want to go over the process so everyone understands how and why investigations are conducted. What kind of questions will be asked in that interview, uh, you know, through that interview process and how that information will be used. This might also be a good time to remind everyone that preventing accidents is better than investigating them. So you're going to want to remind them to report any hazards or concerns before they have to act as a witness in some sort of you know investigation. Obviously letting an employee know that you might see a driver on a forklift driving too fast, although you know there might not have been an accident, uh, that is going to be something that you'll want them to report. Of course, so that way you can prevent an accident in the future um, instead of having to act as a witness that, you know, witness that forklift driver maybe hit a pedestrian or, you know, drop a load, you know, um, off their tines and cause some sort of accident, anything of the sort. So again, just something very key that you'll want to, um, you know, notify your employees on and train them on. And with that, I'll I'll pass it back to Ed uh, to talk about why we investigate in the first place.
1: Thank you, Derek. Yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, it's it's really the employees; they're the ones. Who pay the, co- the costs, right? They're the ones who, who suffer from the accidents if somebody gets hurt and they, they need to make that real for themselves. Um, yeah, I should have added too, I had the thought when we were talking about checklists and, and your accident investigation kit, a checklist is important because this can be a high adrenaline time, an emotional time, and having a checklist of things you want to do, photos you want to take and things like that, that's very important because once the scene's been cleaned up, if you realize we forgot to take pictures of something um, you know it's too late at that point. And that gets into why we investigate. Uh, you know, I talked about uh, making this real for employees. You now if you provide training for everyone, consider explaining why you investigate accidents. Obviously, identifying and eliminating hazards are major reasons, but investigating also shows your company's concern for safety and you can highlight your commitment to protecting your workers. As I said, they're the ones who are going to suffer from the injuries. So you might explain that, an injury means that something went wrong, and you want to know why so you can stop it from happening again. And as Derek said, accidents aren't always the employee's fault. I know that employee conduct can be a factor, uh, but some employees might think they'll be held responsible or even worry that they'll get fired. I Let them know that if they didn't intend to hurt anyone, like starting a fight, Uh, then your focus is gonna be on training or other safeguards looking for those systemic problems to protect everyone by preventing these future incidents. All right, knowing all that, let's go through the investigation steps and we're gonna do this at a high level. Uh, So first is you're probably gonna have to control the scene. We wanna make sure that nobody else is in danger, that there's no ongoing threats, but we want to preserve the scene again so we can figure out what happened. Uh, That might require, say, blocking off the area to isolate the danger or so that evidence doesn't get disturbed. And that's the next step, collecting evidence, taking photos, maybe even drawing sketches with measurements on uh, certain clearances, how big is a gap, or or distances, how far away was this piece of equipment. You might need information even on the position of tools or equipment, uh, housekeeping conditions, even air quality can be a factor. Background noise levels, maybe someone didn't hear a forklift horn or a warning, any factors like that. And of course, we're going to interview employees. Uh, We're going to check records of things like maintenance or inspections. If there was an equipment failure, did we miss some maintenance or should it have been noticed? You'll check injury logs for any similar cases or reports of near misses. Hopefully, you're, you're getting reports of near misses. Anything that might relate to the accident and help identify, again, both the how as well as the why, the immediate surface causes as well as the root causes. Now, collecting evidence should focus on the facts, and it's normal for your brain when you start gathering data to try and connect dots to draw conclusions, but do be aware of that potential and avoid making assumptions about what might have happened or probably happened, because that could cause you to overlook something important. For example, when conducting interviews, We ask open-ended questions. Let the witness tell the story in their own words and ask what happened, like open-ended questions are what happened next. Definitely avoid leading questions. A leading question might cause someone to make something up in an attempt to answer the question. Uh, Witnesses might give their opinions even, but avoid questions that suggest a specific answer. Uh, For example, saying, do you think the worker wasn't paying attention? Uh, that's kind of a leading question, and it expects a particular answer. Uh, it might even sound like an accusation, and a friendly coworker might suddenly feel on the defensive. Well, of course, he was paying attention to what he was doing. So that's the kind of thing that can get you into trouble. Also, remember statements from multiple witnesses might be contradictory. You might think both of these things can't possibly be true. Uh, But that does not mean that either or both is lying. It could just be how they remember the events, that they observe things from a different side, or as, uh, you know, and in fact, as we'll discuss a little bit later, it might be that one witness is trying to deflect some of the blame. And actually, I'm going to pass it to Derek in a moment, but I want to add one more thing. When I've had a, a presentation like this, one of our listeners sent in that it's not just what people saw, it's what they heard. People who didn't witness it might have heard it. Uh, even people might have smelled something. when We're talking air quality, uh, uh, chemical spill, something like that. So witnesses, it can be a pretty broad, pretty broad uh, category there. It's not just eyewitnesses. All right, there you go, Derek.
2: Yeah, no problem. I mean, that's a good point to make, Ed, because oftentimes when we start these interviews or we want to get into these interview questions, your automatic thought, you know, might be, well, let's interview somebody that saw the accident, you know, they 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 saw it happen. Let's let's interview somebody who was actually there um so we can get, you know, the best information possible. But sometimes uh the best information possible as Ed said might come from somebody who just heard the accident happen or, you know, had had a sort of smell that, you know, a sense of smell that they had that you know, maybe they could, you know, provide you some information that might help understand what really went on, you know, when an incident occurred. Obviously, you might need to interview people who are not directly involved, as we mentioned, or who did not see the accident. Maybe workers, supervisor, that might be one good example of someone you might want to interview. You also might want to interview coworkers. They might have some information as well. Essentially, to get the most out of interviews, you may need to understand some basic psychology. You don't wanna ask leading questions, as Ed had mentioned, you don't wanna make accusations, of course, then employees might get on the defensive. Uh, if you do, of course, but it's, it's worth noting that people being interviewed might not be entirely forthcoming. They might not be entirely honest, especially if someone was seriously injured. Of course, there's that sense of guilt that they might have uh, if, if, if you're asking and they had something to do with it. Maybe some witnesses might try to downplay their responsibility too, Again, even, you know, they they might try to deflect it. These sorts of things can happen. And if they do, and it's something that you sense, keep a straight face. Don't make too many comments or suggestions. Just take notes and make sure that you make note of it. Basically, some people may be reluctant to say something negative about a coworker or supervisor. They might not even flat out say that someone else made a mistake or could have done something better. We'll give a few examples. Of course, Ed had mentioned blame shifting, which I'm pretty sure we're going to cover uh, here in just a little bit, but maybe one thing that you want to think about as well. Suppose from earlier, Ed's example of the forklift operator stopped suddenly and the load he was carrying slid off the tines, of course, nearly striking a pedestrian. You might hear some statements like, I didn't see the forklift, or maybe the pedestrian just came out of nowhere. Now that may be how the witness remembers things, but there's probably something else going on here. This is really where follow-up questions are gonna be critical. You might ask something along the lines of, what were you focused on at the time of the accident? Maybe the pedestrian was checking his cell phone and didn't see or hear the forklift, or maybe the forklift was going too fast, or maybe the driver failed to stop and sound their horn at an intersection. Like we said before, there could be several contributing factors here and you want to identify them all because, as you know, uh, the pedestrian just came out of nowhere or I didn't see the forklift isn't necessarily going to help you too much. That's where you're going to want to ask something along the lines of, well, what were you focused on specifically? You know, did you have your attention on something else at the time that maybe you weren't able to see that forklift? What was going on? Really try to dig deep there, of course, while being very careful about that as well. This is where interviews with coworkers might help identify a pattern of behavior. Maybe others have reported the forklift going too fast, or maybe another worker had a near miss, something like that happened. You'll see trends as you start to get witness statements. Um, And of course, those will help lead you in the right direction as well. Along the same lines, watch for possible blame shifting. I'll talk a little bit about this here because blame shifting for example might mean that that forklift operator would say you know the forklift couldn't stop in time so they're shifting blame uh to the truck as well as um you know ensuring that that blame isn't on themselves of course if they were trying to they would say you know i just was driving too fast that would be of course taking you know the the direct correct approach in in, in placing that blame upon yourself that's what we kind of want is that honesty but of course it's hard so There'll be a lot of blame shifting. The forklift couldn't stop on time, uh, things like that. If the brakes on the trucks are working, then a statement like the forklift couldn't stop, uh, you know, in time is an effort to shift blame to the machine essentially is what I'm getting at here. Even a statement like the load was unstable shows that the operator had recognized the problem. They noticed that there was something wrong, but he's probably not going to say I was carrying an unstable load. It's natural, as I mentioned, it's a natural human tendency to shift blame from ourselves. That's okay. And as I mentioned earlier, you don't need to press the issue during the interviews. You don't need to necessarily make comments um, or anything else. Just try to keep a very straight face and take notes. But it's something that you wanna keep in mind as you go over your interview notes in the future. As we said, people may be reluctant to blame a coworker or supervisor or even blame themselves. If you keep getting responses like, I don't remember, or I don't know, maybe the the witness really doesn't remember, but they might also be attempting to avoid some responsibility or avoid blaming someone else in the process. With that, I'll pass it back to Ed. All right,
1: I love these forklift examples and we introduced a scenario here, so I'm gonna give a similar one. Uh, Again, we're gonna say a forklift driver was going too fast for conditions and while going around a corner, an unbalanced load slid off the tines. Now say no one was injured, but this incident gets reported, hopefully gets reported as a near miss because it could have caused a serious injury. Uh, now, I've jumped ahead a little bit here with the investigation and made some assumptions about the immediate causes, kind of listed them for you already, but that's okay. It's my scenario. I can make up what I want. Um, you know, we know the operator's carrying an unstable load, and we know he was driving too fast. The key, though, is asking why those conditions occurred, and that can be more complicated. Why was the operator going too fast? Why didn't he secure the load? Heck, why didn't the people who stacked the load on the pallet secure it or wrap it? Do we, you know, we're starting to go backwards in the process here. Now I said, I like using a forklift example because OSHA says, if the operator is involved in an accident or near miss you need to provide retraining on relevant topics. So obviously I kind of hinted at this earlier in the presentation, we want to consider if training was a factor. Maybe the operator didn't know the rules. Maybe he couldn't recognize an unstable load. But I tell you, when you're talking about what were you focused on at the time of the accident, I was a forklift driver some 30 years ago. And I can tell you, when you're carrying an unstable load, all your focus is on watching that thing bounce. It's a lot harder to notice pedestrians coming and going. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. But as we get into the root causes here, it's also possible that production demands maybe, uh, shall we say, encouraged the operator to cut some safety corners. Maybe our operator knew the load was unstable, but thought he didn't have time to secure it. Or maybe the manager, his manager, had observed the operator driving too fast before, but never enforced the rules. Or worse, when he was going slow, told him to speed up. Now we're starting to get at the why the accident happened. And as you can see, a lot of these issues involve human factors or motivations. When employees behave in an unsafe way, there's a reason for that. There's, there's some reason often getting work done faster. Now, giving the operator refresher training on speed limits or you know, balanced loads, uh, that, that might be helpful. But if it doesn't address the root cause, then you're going to see those problems arise again. The investigation should also include a review of the operator's training records, even his disciplinary records. So interviewing with the operator, the operator's manager, and others in the area might identify a pattern of unsafe behavior. Now, if we've had problems before, near misses, things like that, you should find documentation that the operator was given reminders, given written warnings, uh, maybe given refresher training. Now, if you identify an ongoing problem, but you have no documentation that it was ever addressed, you've got a larger issue. That's the kind of systemic issue we're talking about. So, you know, we sometimes hold the employee accountable for an accident saying, well, obviously, he was carrying an unstable load. Or he was going too fast. It's his fault. But if the supervisor is not enforcing the rules or even worse, actively encouraging violations, then the supervisor shares some responsibility. You know, If the supervisor berated the driver for going too slow or taking too much time, uh, production demands were pushed. Retraining the operator as required by OSHA is not going to fix the root cause. Maybe the supervisor or the manager is the one who needs some of that retraining as well. And we need a whole different emphasis. We may have larger safety culture issues to address. So we want to talk about who's accountable and who has the ability to fix the problem. but that that's not going to be the employee is going to be the one fixing the problem. Back to Derek again,
2: yeah, you're absolutely right, Ed, and sometimes we often think that you know it's it's not necessarily it's not necessarily always going to be the employee's fault. It's not necessarily always going to be the manager's supervisor's fault. um really, it comes down to what your safety culture may be within your specific workplace. obviously, um a lot of folks tend to think sometimes um at least from my experience that safety and production and your plans and processes within your own workplace are all separate silos. But uh, this is where we find here at Keller that, you know, there's a fine line drawn between the greatest programs and the good ones because the good ones say, well, safety first, right? You've often heard that statement. Um, but of course, the great programs will say safe production is what we strive for really, right? Because it it shows us that you value safety and you also value that production. Um, Once all the evidence is collected, though, as we move on here, the next steps are pretty easy to list, but they're hard to do. They basically include going over the data to determine what the root causes were. Now, Ed had mentioned maybe production demands uh, were, you know, driving that forklift driver to speed, you know, throughout the facility, and that's why. Well, really, you almost have to dig a little bit deeper and say, well, although there are production demands, does this mean that maybe, you know, is as part of the facility where he works as a staffing issue. Um, And of course, you're going to have to communicate those specific findings, whatever the case may be. They need to be communicated to those who can make the change and who can implement whatever change you need to make sure that the workplace is safe. Also includes developing and implementing those corrective actions. And then the biggest thing that I think personally here is monitoring those actions to make sure uh, that they are working so are those corrective measures that you put in place actually working or are they making the problem worse are they doing nothing in either case you want to make sure that you monitor the effectiveness just so you can see if you need to tweak something uh, make a specific change within the workplace so you can get to where you need to be uh, within your own workplace And we do want to highlight the importance of monitoring the corrective action to make sure that it's effective and that it isn't creating new or different hazards as well As an example, if the solution was changing to a different type of personal protective equipment, you wanna ensure that that PPE is actually used and that it actually solved the problem. Again, as I had mentioned earlier and that it doesn't cause new problems. Of course, corrective actions you select will depend on the hazards and even the resources that are available to you. For instance, rather than trying a new type of PPE, you might even look into possible engineering controls or work practice controls. And as a side note, again, this is where we kind of see that fine line. A lot of folks who are relying on PPE uh, that could actually just instead rely on cheaper options like engineering controls or administrative controls or simply removing the hazard itself. Um, that's, that's kind of where you want to be is see if you can remove the hazard first, then look into engineering or administrative controls, as opposed to providing that new type of PPE. But, uh, I'll try not to go on another ramble here for you, but moving on a little bit about uh, identifying causes specifically the root causes, those will influence the corrective actions that you have in place, but don't just think about physical causes. Also think about motivational causes. Those are going to be harder to identify and correct, but they will need to be fixed. Otherwise, the root cause will still be a factor, and they may cause future accidents. You may need to ask why questions, as Ed had mentioned, several times to really drill down a root cause, like, why did the employee fall? Well, he slipped on a wet floor. Well, okay, well, why was the floor wet? Well, it turns out there's a leaking pipe well, why wasn't the pipe reported or fixed? And you keep going on like that until you really get to that root cause. Again, you're going to sit and ask why questions a lot. You might even feel like a little kid as you're going through this. Well, why? Why? I have a goddaughter. She's about three years old who, who does this sort of thing. Um, but in the workplace, it's really, really key if you're going to identify those specific causes. Again, corrective actions like retraining may be necessary, but you may still need to work with the manager to ensure that the training gets reinforced on a daily basis. There are a lot of potential causes for accidents from weather conditions to faulty equipment to incomplete procedures. There could even be breakdowns in communication or any number of other reasons. Either way, your investigation should cover the who, what, where, and when of the incident. We've noted that immediate causes address how an accident happened, but again, as I said, you really want to get to the why an accident happened in the first place. We say that accidents do not just happen. That's not entirely true. Of course, if you're working on a machine or even a forklift, equipment can fail or break, which we totally understand. That creates an unexpected situation, but there should be safeguards in place to protect employees if that sort of thing happens. Other than that, maybe something was overlooked that could have been done to prevent the incident. And this really gets to the why uh, an accident happened as I had mentioned earlier. Ed? Thank you, Derek. Yeah, let, why again is the,
1: the, the root cause analysis. So what are you looking for? Well, you should be looking for physical conditions, of course, but you should also be looking at employee actions. Again, conditions and actions are usually what combine, but we wanna know the motivations for those actions. Uh, If an immediate cause or surface cause was an equipment failure, the root causes might be a lack of maintenance or the failure of a safety protocol that was supposed to protect employees in case of a breakdown. You know, you get a flat tire on your car on the highway, you can have an accident, but that's why you have seat belts, airbags, things like that to prevent the injury. And while we do want to avoid blaming the employee, uh, you know, things like a lack of attention to the job can certainly be a factor. But again, as with the forklift driver we gave, carrying an unstable load, was there some underlying cause or motivation? Was the employee not properly trained or was he under production pressure or was he encouraged to take shortcuts? So again, the point is we can acknowledge that the employee's actions play a role, but that doesn't mean we're placing all the blame on the employee if there's some other motivational or systematic uh, problem to address here. So We've listed the step of communicating the investigation results and, of course, the step of identifying possible corrective actions. We gave our list earlier, but which one should come first? Well, depending on your company policy or even the seriousness of the incident, you might be recommending corrections or you might report the findings to a group and work together on developing corrective actions. It really depends on who needs to be involved when implementing those corrective actions. That goes back to what I was talking about, who's accountable. Now a group discussion might be needed to identify solutions, various types of expertise. And then again, to assign responsibility or accountability for implementing them. Uh, As an example, we've hinted that a supervisor might need to take a more active role when enforcing safety rules and discouraging shortcuts. Uh, That could be a perfectly legitimate corrective action, but. You, as a safety professional, are probably not implementing new reviews for supervisors in the plant. So, who is accountable for doing that? Now, when you put up a report, your investigation summary will describe the incident. uh, Probably list any interim steps you've taken to address the hazards. Uh, You know, if something, if if a fix is going to take a little more time, we might need something in the in the meantime. Uh, You should document the suspected causes, including your immediate and your root causes, your suspected causes. Those findings should be supported by documentation, whether it's maintenance records, photographs, uh, statements from witnesses. And of course, you'll likely have a list of recommended actions to prevent these incidents from occurring again. So as an example, suppose an employee got an eye injury because he wasn't wearing safety glasses. You investigate and you find that He was trained. He was aware of the signs that said safety glasses were required. He even had safety glasses with him. Well, why wasn't he wearing them? Well, maybe he felt that the rules didn't apply to him. Maybe his glasses were scratched up and he couldn't see, so he wasn't wearing them. Uh, Maybe they were uncomfortable or they were fogging up, so he took them off. Uh, You know, Replacement glasses or a new type of glasses or anti-fog lens treatments, any of those could be possible solutions to why the employee wasn't wearing safety glasses. And back to Derek already.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I actually addressed this one earlier, and I got a little bit ahead of myself, which I apologize for folks, but, um, you know, in this <laughs> next step, you're really going to want to select corrective actions that you have. A lot of you have probably seen the hierarchy of controls is that upside down pyramid that goes from light to dark, dark being the red side. And that's where personal protective equipment is. And a lot of folks at least tend to think that that personal protective equipment is at the top where they might be able to assign personal protective equipment to just protect the employee right away. However, that's not the case because you can eliminate the hazard at its source, right? So you can completely get rid of it out of the workplace. This isn't always the case, right? We can't always just eliminate a specific hazard especially if it's a chemical that we need to use in our workplace. We can't necessarily get rid of it. But you still might be able to substitute that chemical. Is there a less hazardous one that you can work with that still works all the same, that's just as good as the one that you have? If so, then yeah, you can substitute that chemical. Um, I know another example, um, someone had came to me and asked, well, I use steel bands to wrap up some boxes in, in packaging that you know, we send off to, um, to a vendor. And those steel bands are cutting employees. How, you know, what type of PPE should I provide them? What sort of hand protection should I provide them? And my first thought was, well, obviously you can't eliminate steel band. You're going to need it, right, to keep the boxes shut. Whatever it is that, you know, that process, you need that band in place to keep the boxes shut. Can you use tape instead? That's kind of a good substitution. Can you use a plastic band instead? And the response sort of was, huh, never really thought of it that way. I thought to just provide some, you know, cut-resistant gloves right off the <laughs> right off the bat. Um, so, again, you can substitute, you know, that, that specific chemical or PPE, whatever it might be that you're using. You might be able to use engineering controls. Of course, uh, heat stress is a, is, a, is a serious issue today. It's getting really hot out here, at least in Wisconsin. Um, other folks that are in, you know, some of those other states, Arizona, I know it's pretty hot. Can you provide a tent or air conditioning indoors, uh, you know, where employees can go and sit and kind of cool off if they need it? Um, administrative or work practice controls. Are you able to schedule employees, you know, at, at switching shifts, two hours outside and that's your max for the day? um those are some sort of administrative controls that you could implement you know when it's nice and hot outside Um, personal protective equipment as we all know of course is at the bottom of that list There, close to uh, needing to change at more than one level keep in mind that might be something that has to happen implementing changes at more than one level depending on how the root causes you know came out for you for example maybe the workers need a new type of safety glass but the manager also needs training on enforcing the rules in the first place. And that kind of gets into a little bit of the safety culture stuff that Ed and I had talked about um, earlier. So again, just a few things to keep in mind as you go over uh, some of your selective corrective actions, um, you know, that you decide to implement after you have found your root causes and, and now you're ready to move on to that next step. Now let's say that you found an unguarded machine. That was the cause of the injury. Obviously you'll need to guard the machine according to OSHA standards, but you'll also have a number of other questions to address uh, maybe, why was it unguarded in the first place, or why was the guard removed? Why did workers use an unguarded machine? Was the supervisor aware of this? Do you need more walkthrough inspections, more worker training, a different type of guard? Really a, a bunch of different questions that you can ask here, um, as opposed to just making sure that you're following those OSHA standards. This is what you know we really call going beyond. Uh, above and beyond and implementing those best practices, of course, asking those questions, who will be responsible and accountable for future compliance in the first place, you know? So that way we can ensure this sort of thing doesn't happen again. These are all factors that will influence the type of corrective actions that, that you evaluate. Now, once you've chosen the corrective actions, you'll need to implement them. And depending on the changes needed, you'll want to set up a timeline along with any interim steps. For example if training will be part of the solution it will also need to be scheduled and delivered and workers will need to be protected until they can get trained you also need to assign responsibilities for implementing the changes and evaluating if they're even effective we talked a little bit about this too earlier this evaluation could be over a period of days it could be over a period of weeks or even months a change might seem effective at first but over time new problems could arise so again you're going to want to make sure that you're evaluating that process uh, before you know, you decide to just stick with it and say, this is exactly what we're gonna go with. Um, instead, make sure that you evaluate it and see if there are things that could be improved. Although the corrective measures should fix the hazard and prevent recurrence, someone will need to make sure that that new process is consistently followed from that point forward as well. When you're looking to assign accountability, consider who has the authority to make changes in the first place. Who's going to monitor those changes and who will be authorized to address any problems or concerns. For example, if part of the problem was that a maintenance schedule was not followed, you might ask questions like, why was the maintenance schedule overlooked? Again, you want to address not just the how, but also the why, so you better have a chance of preventing the situation from recurring. In some cases, you might find that the corrective actions are not working as well as you hoped, and you'll need to evaluate other corrective measures there should be a handful of different people within your facility that you can look to to make sure that they take over this specific part of uh your investigation at the end where there's correction and there's accountability that's being assigned this isn't always going to be the EHS uh manager of course it you know it's something that you can look to your EHS manager to do but of course it's going to be beyond them and it's going to go to the manager level you know at every department in your facility it's going to go to the supervisor level again so it's really just making sure that everyone is involved for for keeping those corrective actions up and updated, and and keeping everyone accountable. Ed, all right, all right. To kind of get near the end, as we're going to go over
1: the over the next few slides, I'm going to give some examples of possible motivational causes that you might encounter, and we'll give some ideas of how you might address them. Now, this isn't going to be an all fix, but you know we've listed them here, and these are things that we've some human factors we've had customers. Pr- raise over the years, you know, lack of attention, complacency, resistance to change. Fixing these things isn't going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. Uh, for many of these, you're going to need buy-in to get those changes. And let's face it, entire books have been written on change management. But, you know, the short thing is we call this getting buy-in because you need to sell your ideas. You need to convince others to buy them and follow them or and to adopt them as their own. So basically, you need to lay out the reasons that a change is needed and show everyone the value of the change. If they see the value, they're more likely to buy it. And you want to anticipate likely objections and be prepared to address them. Every good salesperson is ready with an objection. It sounds expensive. We have financing. No problem. And ideally, you'll be able to show how the change makes things better and beyond hopefully just reducing the risk of an injury. So one possible problem, lack of attention. Uh, You know, we do the same task over and over, especially something simple. Our minds tend to wander and we're not paying a full attention to the job. Now, if you've ever been driving a car and realize you don't remember the last few seconds on the highway, you've experienced this. Well, it happens at work also. And that's why a forklift driver might say a pedestrian appeared out of nowhere. Paying strict attention all day is tough uh, for routine tasks in particular or for duties like driving, because the forklift operator is not just looking where it's going, looking for pedestrians, watching the load. They have split focus. Now, in some cases, there could even be external distractions. Uh, We've had questions, can people listen to music while wearing hearing protection? Well, it's usually not a good idea. It's a distraction, and music can prevent people from hearing things like warnings. Uh, So lack of attention is tough to deal with. I mean, you can eliminate distractions as much as possible, remind workers to give their full attention to what they're doing. And again, remind them of what could happen if their attention wanders and you're using tools that can cause serious injury. I'm going to kind of delay the response to this one as we go through complacency, because I think this is related to it. Uh, For complacency, I'm talking about people who ignore the rules. They claim that, well, nothing bad happened, so there shouldn't be a problem. Again, addressing complacency is not easy. It's an ongoing effort, and it's going to need continual reminders. Distracted driving is a good way to explain this to your workers, actually, because most likely someone has checked their cell phone while driving or adjusted the radio or been eating, and they realize they drifted out of their lane a little bit. They divided their focus. But if they didn't cause an accident, they do it again, maybe a few days later or a few weeks later. Well, that's complacency. We know it's bad, but we keep doing it. Um, The thing is, if you have workers who've experienced that, I bet almost all of your workers have gotten angry when another driver on the highway does that and drifts into their lane. So ask them, and it's a rhetorical question, why are you doing something that you get very upset when other people do the exact same thing? Uh, Hopefully, that brings it home a little bit. Now, changing habits, again, isn't easy for attention, mind drift, complacency. There's no simple solution. Continual reminders are going to be needed. Uh, You might have daily meetings on complacency. Uh, You post signs, probably. You get support from coworkers and supervisors. Unfortunately, the risk may not seem real until an accident happened, and if there's any of you listening who have had the unfortunate experience of a serious injury in the workplace, like a, an amputation, hospitalization, a fatality, uh, suddenly everything gets very real. Everything's very serious. Well, <clears throat> to deal with this lack of attention, this complacency, we need to get those workers to get understand the reality of the situation before that happens. Because you know, once you have an amputation or a fatality or a hospitalization, it's too late they need to understand that the risk is very real before something bad happens. Another possible cause is peer pressure. Uh, Again, working faster by taking shortcuts. To use an example of driving again, because everybody's done it, you're on the freeway, pretty much everybody goes maybe just a little over the speed limit and you probably go with the flow. Uh, that happens with safety sometimes. We, we kind of do a little violation, but if everybody else is doing it, we go with the flow. Uh, so we hinted earlier that supervisors could be a source of this pressure. Even if they're not discouraging employees from working safely, are they actively encouraging safety? You know, let's face it, I like to say, and you can borrow this because this is not a copyright phrase, I think safety shortcuts lead to accidents faster. That, that's what safety shortcuts do. They get you to the accident that much faster. Now, how you combat this kind of peer pressure can vary, but you know employers do have some control over peer pressure. A lot of it has to do with training on the importance of safety, showing that safety is of value to the company, making it real, showing people what could happen, uh, explaining the cost of accidents. I can tell you when I worked in a factory 30 years ago plus They told a story about a guy who had his arm amputated and his coworkers put it in a cooler and drove him to the hospital and his arm was reattached. More than 30 years later, that story sticks with me. When it's real like that, people remember it. But beyond that, it really just comes down to not tolerating violations of the safety rules. Derek again.
2: Yeah, one problem we might face is resistance to change. Um, How often have you heard the statement? You know, we've done it this way for years and we've never had a problem. The issue here is that oftentimes getting workers to accept those changes can be tough. Again, it's not necessarily a problem. You know, it's kind of a really negative way of thinking about it. But it's definitely a challenge uh, and one that can be addressed. Right. So instead of telling employees to change, try requesting instead that they make a change in the workplace. Rather than saying, you know, you need to do it this way, try saying, we'd like you to try something new. Your senior workers especially will probably be more likely to accept a request rather than a demand. Of course, with that demand comes the feeling of this is an authoritative figure. You know, this is the safety police that's coming after me that's telling me to do something. Um, Of course, when you say we'd like you to try something new or how would you feel about trying this? You know they they get that sense of, of of you know inclusion where they're like okay this is something that you know they're coming to me for that you know they'd like advice on so um they may be more accepting of that instead some employees will of course object so you need to validate their concerns for example if an employee says that's going to take longer well you might agree that it could take longer but that you want to try it anyway uh acknowledging the objection is much better than just dismissing it by saying something like well don't worry about that that's not your concern uh, you really need to validate that objection, not just dismiss the employee. Finally, you might want to tell them too that you'd really appreciate their help evaluating a new process. Explain that after a month you'd like feedback on how it works. What could possibly be improved within uh, you know, that, that new process that you've implemented? Are there things that you know they'd like to see change? Ask them, are you willing to help? Most employees should say yes. And depending on your feedback, you can always say, let's make your suggested changes then try it for a month. Once they've been using the new process for a couple months, it should become a regular habit. And I can't stress enough how important it is saying, you know, we will use your suggested changes and we'll try that out. That's huge for employee morale. They feel more included. Of course, then that improves your own safety culture. You're able to really include all your employees within it, and of course, it's something that they feel proud of as they're working through that process. Is saying to themselves, "Hey, this is something that I suggested." You know, um, upper management, supervisors, whoever it may be, uh, you know, from that from that management level, they they're really hearing me out. Um, again, they're they're really receptive to that sort of thing. we've mentioned that the role that supervisors play a number of times is important but since they're the day-to-day contact for employees obviously it's going to be very key supervisors can have a big impact on safety but in many cases both the workers and managers are given an annual performance review based on their productivity with little or no recognition for safety at all your executive team might have used the phrase what gets measured gets done if your company is measuring and rewarding productivity But you're not recognizing or measuring safety then you can guess where your employees and supervisors will focus most of their attention maybe a supervisor tells employees to work faster but never really recognizes them for following safety rules for being as safe as they can be on the job or they don't enforce the rules at all supervisors need to ensure that the work gets done on time but they should also get measured and recognized for safety records of their departments of course this is where i had said earlier a lot of the time safety is seen as its own silo. You know, you might start off the day with safety first everyone, uh, that's great. But of course you wanna get that safety first, uh, you know, statement into something like safe production is our, is our only goal or safe production is what we strive for. Uh, just so that way you combine safety and the work you do to make sure that that is within your safety culture is something that's important, not just on its own or separate. Now, we've kind of gotten away from the investigation focus a bit, but we think that knowing some of the possible root causes will help you conduct a better investigation. And we want to point out that some root causes may need to be addressed at the corporate level. Upper management may have a tendency to blame employees, which is something that we've talked about earlier. Although employees must accept some responsibility, the root cause for their behavior may come from a higher level, right? So nobody is, safe from any sort of accountability. If that is the case, then you'll need upper management support to really get some sort of change within the safety culture. In the end, the purpose of investigating is to identify and address root causes so you can prevent future incidents. And prevention doesn't have to wait for an accident or even a near miss. You might already be aware of some motivational causes we discussed. Don't wait until an injury happens, essentially, is what I'm saying. If you can start addressing those causes now, like we mentioned earlier, preventing accidents is better than investigating them. There may be conditions behaviors motivation or even lack of enforcement or other factors that are currently a problem in some areas and if it's possible at all start fixing those causes before an accident happens i'll pass it back to ed here
1: thank you derek all right so prevention is key and of course analyzing trends is a big part of that so we want to give you the opportunity to check out our incident center in the safety management suite if you didn't elect for access to our compliance tools earlier now is the time to do so The Incident Center helps you track incidents, illnesses, injuries, near misses, property damage, and much more. You can analyze your trends using interactive charts. You can auto-generate the OSHA Form 300, 300A, and 301 reports. So let's put that poll up one more time, and then we're going to ask, you know, let us know your interests, and we will send you our complimentary white paper on OSHA 101. And with that, I'm going to pass things back to uh, to Alan for a little bit and then we're going to start taking your questions.
0: Okay. Well, thank you both so much for this fantastic insightful presentation. Before we start the q and I want to remind everyone the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will appear open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcast. And it looks like we have time for at least a couple of questions. Um, the first question, if the person did not think there was a risk and there's, and that has been determined to be the root cause, how do you recommend correcting that?
1: All right. I think I marked that one. And if the person doesn't think there's a risk, why don't they think there are a risk? Because I don't know that the employee's attitude is the root cause. We were saying that the employee, and I'm not dismissing your your argument here, but we say – we. I wanna be careful that we're not taking a blame the employee pro- approach. Sometimes the employee is to blame, but if the employee doesn't understand the risk, um, then it's our duty to show them that. And again, if they're really having an attitude problem, um, you know, where they're refusing this, it gets into the complacency thing, uh, ignoring the risk. I will say there's, there's a reason for the attitude. Attitude is not a root cause. Attitude is a symptom of something else. So when we see an employee has an attitude problem, we can't fix the attitude. It's, it's no better than telling your teenager, you need to adjust your attitude. We need to figure out in, from the employee's perspective, what's the reason for that attitude? Why don't they see the risk? And if they're dismissive of it, you know, ultimately, if we can't fix it, we have the option of removing them from the job if they're just not taking it seriously. So there are some options there. But again, um, I'd, be, I'd be cautious of saying that the employee's uh, perspective is the root cause. I'm, I'm not saying it can't happen, that if everybody else, there's no other problems identified. But even there, there's, there's, there may be things we can do from the company's perspective to, um, to make it real for them, to make that risk real, as I was hinting
0: at earlier. What else do we have? Well, this question is for Derek. Um, Can you please restate the term used for for promoting safety and production?
2: Um, Yeah, I don't know that it was a term necessarily. I think it was earlier when I, and I had mentioned it too here towards the end um, where your safety culture is really based on how you view safety and production in the workplace. Of course, any process, not just production, but I had mentioned, a lot of folks see safety as its own silo, right? So it's something that needs its own separate focus um, at the EHS manager level or even, um, you know, maybe above the EHS manager, which is rare. But um, some folks like to think that the EHS manager, he's the only person or they're, you know, she's the only person that's supposed to focus on safety in the workplace. That's not necessarily the case. Obviously, everyone is responsible for safety in the workplace. And really, that that safety first mentality should really be. The safety production, you know, safe production is our, you know, only standard or is our standard, whatever that motto may be, that phrase may be, you should incorporate safety into it. Because of course, um, employees, management, whoever should see safety as something that's integral to your business and what you do. Because whether it's with plans and policies or accident investigations, all of these things have to deal with safety. And you have the same sort of processes within them to make sure that that everything's working smoothly within your workplace. And it all affects obviously your business and how you how you function. So it shouldn't be seen as its own thing it should be seen as something that you know works in conjunction with uh, your your programs and your processes in, in your facility whatever it is that, that you may do uh, out there. What else do we have?
0: It looks like we have time for one more question. Alan, um, there was one on
1: there was one on a criminal investigation. Can you Okay, go yeah, that
0: one? There, we can go with that one. How do you how do you begin an investigation when a criminal investigation is underway?
1: Okay, now I, how do you investigate when there's a criminal investigation underway? I
0: can't give you advice on that one, but I
1: can tell you that if there's a criminal investigation underway, you may have your you're probably going to have your attorney involved, and then you'll have guidance on this. I wanted to address this one because for serious incidents, a lot of employers will conduct the investigation under the advice of attorneys. The reason is if you do the investigation, OSHA can request the report if the investigation is done under the direction of attorney, it's attorney-client privilege protected and OSHA can't grab their hands on it nearly as easily. So I just wanted to bring that up that that's why people will have attorneys direct in a serious incident. And so if you're on a criminal investigation, you absolutely should have your attorney involved. They're the ones who should be giving you advice on how to proceed.
0: Well, thank you everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions we forwarded to our sponsor. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. Since today's Safety Health Magazine webcast, I'd like to thank Derek Plowden, Ed Zaleski, everyone at JJ Keller, and of course, all of our listeners. Thank you and have a safe day.